What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com slash consulting. IBM. Let's create. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's the groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. This Father's Day, power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. Find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? All right, so I've been looking at octopus facts all week, and I hope you have too, because that's the episode we're recording right now. But (laughs) did you know that they love puzzles? Like, they actually kind of need them? I mean, it's not surprising that they're smart. They're basically giant heads with too many legs. So I was reading about Louis the octopus. He's a giant Pacific octopus who lives at an aquarium in Cornwall, England. So he's this beautiful six-foot-wide creature, and he insists on cuddling with his Mr. Potato Head toy. Which sounds cute. It is, but Lewis gets really aggressive if you try to take it away from him, so don't try to do that. I mean, Lewis needs to learn to share. So is he just rearranging the toy all day? Well, he does fiddle with the parts, and and supposedly the bright colors are also stimulating, but the most appealing thing for him is that the scientists fill the tiny toy with crab meat or smelt. They just stuff it through the arm and the head holes. (laughs) And it's a bit of a puzzle. I mean, it's fun for Lewis and other octopus to figure out how to get those treats. But reading about Lewis made me wonder. How smart are squid and octopus? What are the major differences between them? And how exactly do you stuff a smelt into a potato head? (laughs) And that's exactly what today's show is all about. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend Mangesh Hatikater. And sitting behind the soundproof glass wearing his Octopus Give the Best Hugs t-shirt is our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. <laughs> He'd been staring at that thing on eBay for weeks. That's sweet, Tristan. So, Mango, today's show is a little all over the place. I know we wanted to chat about squid and octopus. Yeah, that's right. But since we're covering the sea, I thought it'd be fun to slip in a quick chat with one of our favorite authors, Julie Burwald. She wrote this lovely new book called Spineless. It's all about jellyfish. And and though octopus and squid and jellyfish aren't exactly the same thing, it did feel like a delicious seafood salad of an episode. (laughs) But you don't even eat octopus, Mango. I know. You know, I, I actually used to eat it, but... Then we did this article on octopus at Menelfloss, and they just seemed too smart. And also, it compared the creatures to kittens. <laughs> Actually, I pulled up this quote because I thought it was so funny. Here. 
To the chagrin of some scientists, these cephalopods can run. As a pre-vet student, Alexa Warburton had the tricky task of scooping octopuses out of their tanks. The stubborn animals would hide or squeeze into the tank's cracks to avoid being removed. As a last-ditch effort, some octopuses would trampoline off the net, leap to the floor, and take off, zigzagging around the lab. <laughs> it's like, quote, chasing a cat, Warburton told Orion Magazine. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I feel like herding octopus is the new herding cats. But uh, there, there was a bit in the story where this octopus actually escaped into a scientist's library. And when the scientist walked in, he saw the octopus going through each of his books, just turning the pages. No way. Is that <laughs> yeah. actually true? Yeah, we fact-checked it. <laughs> I mean, there's certainly escape artists, and, and they're kind of destructive, too. Scientific American reported that two workers at the Santa Monica Pier Aquarium walked in to find 200 gallons of seawater soaking the floor of their new space. So they tried to figure out what had happened, and they realized these two octopus had quote, disassembled a water recycling valve and redirected the tubes to <laughs> spew water out of the tank for about 10 hours. That must have been so much water. <laughs> it's ridiculous. But, I mean, that seems more playful than mean-spirited, right? Yeah. And uh, obviously we know that octopuses play, not just from your Lewis and Mr. Potato Head example, but also because octopuses have been observed in boring situations amusing themselves. So there was this one story I read where this octopus in a tank was given, like, an empty floating pill bottle, I think, and after enough time, it started flicking it into a jet of water in the aquarium and waiting for it to come back, then doing it again and again. And the scientists claimed it was like watching a kid throw a ball against a wall. But it did make me wonder, how smart are octopus? And so what did you find out? That octopus aren't really very cooperative subjects. Right. <laughs> I mean, obviously, they've got all these skills, right? They're super strong. They can hide. Sometimes they mimic other forms. And, and you're talking specifically about the mimic octopus. That's one of the types of octopus, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're masters of disguise and changing their shapes. But they're also good at going through mazes and solving little puzzles. But all of that makes them really difficult to study. So this is from a report I saw in The Guardian. Apparently, this 1959 paper tried to teach three octopus to pull a lever for food. And we've seen this with, you know, monkeys and rats and other creatures. And first of all, the octopus in the study have the best, most dignified names. Oh, yeah, what's that? They were called Albert, Bertram, and Charles. That's what I would have named my octopus. <laughs> that, that is dignified. So Albert and Bertram are really good subjects. They pull the levers in a, quote, reasonably consistent manner, according to the study. But... Charles, it turns out, is a total terror. Oh, no. Like, he tries to pull a light that's suspended above the water into the tank. He squirts water at anyone who gets close. He's basically <laughs> taunting the scientists. And then he ends the experiment by breaking off the levers so they couldn't run the experiment anymore. <laughs> I mean, Charles is totally gangster. I mean, I have to admit, I kind of like Charles. At least it'd be <laughs> amusing to watch him. I feel like maybe there's a whole episode to be done on octopuses behaving badly. I mean, mm -hmm. they can undo latches and untie knots. I even saw a story where scientists were complaining that octopus would leave their lab tanks at night and then go raid the neighboring tanks for food. <laughs> there was one octopus who was squirting water at the light switch to turn it off. And then he short-circuited the power. I mean, oh, the, these are these horror stories that come out. And clearly they're kind of smart. But I wonder if we think octopuses are especially smart because they look like, I don't know, like aliens, really. I mean, they are alien-like. I don't think we'd be doing this episode if they weren't. And their entire class of mollusks is called cephalopods, which means head foot. <laughs> they're all a bunch of head feet. <laughs> <laughs> and to be clear, that category isn't just octopus. It includes squid and cuttlefish and nautiluses. But there's a big debate about whether they're really that smart. So octopus have about a half billion neurons, and that's particularly amazing for a creature without a backbone. But, you know, in reality, it puts them in the range of dogs. 
So even though they might play with a Rubik's Cube, it, it's not like they're consistently solving them or anything. <laughs> At least I haven't seen one. I mean, there's this old uh, Bert and Ernie sketch from Sesame Street where Ernie walks in on Bert and he says, that's amazing, Bert. You're playing checkers with your pigeon. <laughs> and Bert kind of whispers something like, Ernie, it's not that impressive. Of the seven times we've played, he's only won twice. (laughs) (laughs) I think one thing I read that really convinced me of their intelligence was that when they're faced with a problem, they actually change strategies. Well, how do you mean? So Scientific American pointed this out, but apparently octopuses are a little lazy. Like, they're obviously quite strong, and if they're given mussels or clams, they'll go for the mussels just because the meat is easier to get to and the shells take less effort. But if the clams are served on a half shell, you know, if they're at a cocktail party or something, they'll go for the tastier, meatier options. But here's what's interesting, right? When scientists passed along mussels but wired a few of the shells shut, the octopus tried to open it using one method. They can use their arms, but then they also have this beak that they can use to chip away at the shell. And then when that took too long, they drilled the little hole in and injected a poison to weaken the creature's defenses. Like all octopus and cuttlefish have a poison reserve, but the octopus would use one method, and if that proved futile, they'd switch to a different one. And the author's point was most creatures, when they fail, they just keep trying to do the same thing over and over rather than adjust their approach. That is pretty cool. And I know we're going to get into the giant squid and kraken and and how octopus and squid are different, but before we do, let's chat a little bit more about the octopus. So what's one of the more surprising things you learned about them in doing your research this week? Uh... That they're not good swimmers, I think, was interesting to me. And the reason's even weirder. It's all because they have three hearts. So they're not good swimmers because they have three. (laughs) Yeah, actually, that was surprising to me, too. I mean, I read in Smithsonian that two of the hearts work to move blood beyond their gills. And honestly, there's so many parts of the octopus I didn't realize. Beaks and gills and radula, which is kind of like a tiny drill for a tongue. Yeah, and and their penis is on one of their arms, which I also never realized. I mean, I guess that's a little weird, too. (laughs) You know that while some octopus mount their partners, others will just stick their penis arm into a cave where a female octopus is hiding. And so they mate in what's called the distance position. (laughs) That's so ridiculous. But uh, we were talking about the three hearts. All right. So the two hearts move blood beyond the gills. And then the third heart is exclusively for pumping blood to organs. But when they're swimming, they actually turn that heart off. It stops beating entirely. So they get completely exhausted when they move that way. And they mostly choose to walk or crawl instead. Well, I like the idea that octopuses actually enjoy long walks on the beach. But uh, there's clearly a ton more to say about these bizarre and wonderful creatures. But I also want to get Julie on the phone to talk about jellyfish. So how about we take a little break for that and then we dive back in. All right, let's do it. Mango, we've got a special guest on the line with us today. She's the author of a fascinating new book called Spineless, The Science of Jellyfish and the Art of Growing a Backbone. Julie Burwald, welcome to Part-Time Genius. Thank you so much for having me. So, Julie, jellyfish are obviously these simple and beautiful but also reviled creatures, and they cause problems for swimmers and in factories. I'm kind of curious, why did you choose to study the jellyfish? Yeah, I mean, it's true. And and there's something about what you just said that made them really fascinating to me because, um, you know, you can put polar bears in this like box of like, oh, they're so, you know, impressive and, and beautiful and big. And they, they are this charismatic creature. And, but jellyfish have more subtlety to them. Mm-hmm. You know, they're undeniably beautiful. And yet you're right. Like they can be lethal and they can be, a, you know, a, a symbol of ecosystem demise. 
And there was something about that, the fact that they kind of wafted back and forth across these lines in our minds that I found super fascinating. And they're, they're just such strange creatures, too. I know you've written that they can see light without eyes. Do you mind, do you mind just taking a minute for our listeners and, and describe a little bit of their biology and, and, and what some of the more curious things about their bodies that you've found? Um, yeah. So, you know, they are super simple. They have just like we have three cell layers. So we have an endoderm and exoderm, which is like our skin, our outside skin. And then in between, we have this mesoderm that holds all our organs and everything. And jellyfish just don't have that. They have jelly inside. It's truly, it's called mesoglia and it's <laughs> acellular. And so, um, they have this really cool ability that they, they're like, um, big, they're like a balloon, right? So they have skin on the outside, skin on the inside, and then something that they don't have to support metabolically on the inside. So they get away with being big at very low metabolic cost. And that's part of what makes them so successful, and that's why I called the book Spineless, because their very spinelessness is actually contributing to their um, increase in abundances in many places in our oceans. I went to go visit these um, scientists in Woods Hole, who work at the Marine Biological Laboratory there, and they were the Navy had given them money to build robotic jellyfish, and they weren't entirely certain what the Navy wanted to do with these robotic jellyfish, <laughs> but they were pretty excited about the opportunity, and so they created this jellyfish out of silicone and sort of like fake muscles called actuators, and when they turned it on, um, it squeezed and it squeezed shut, and that causes a jet of water to come out behind it, which pushes on the water, and it moves the jellyfish forward, but then when it opened back up, it went right back to its starting place, like a yo-yo. And they were like, well, what's going on? And so they, this graduate student was like, well, you know that peplum around the edge of the jellyfish, that part that's kind of beautiful that just flops around? The, je- the graduate student was like, I didn't have time to glue that little flap on the robot. So they pulled it out of the water, and they glued it on, they put it back in the water, and they turned it on, and it, 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 they turned it on and it squeezed and it jetted forward. And then when it opened up, it actually continued going forward. And then it squeezed again and it went forward farther and then it opened and it continued going forward. And it turns out that that little flexible flap is, is what drives part of what drives the jellyfish forward in the water. It gives it the push backwards. But then they figured out um, it doesn't only give it a push backwards. It actually creates a low pressure zone in, in front of the jellyfish, like the bending kind of creates this suction in front of the jellyfish and that suction pulls the animal forward through the water. And then they started looking at all these other animals. And if you think about it, everything in the ocean or in water bends when it moves, like nothing solid, like the way we build boats, they all bend. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that bending is because it creates this low pressure in front of the animal that pulls it through the water. So we've thought about um, swimming completely backwards. It turns out that um, the forces, you know, in front of the jellyfish pulling it are stronger than the forces behind the jellyfish pushing it. And because we're terrestrial and all we can do is push backwards in order to go forward, we just completely misunderstood swimming for our whole all of civilization, really. That's amazing. And then, um, yeah, it's a really cool story. All right. Well, speaking of travel, I know you traveled all the way to Japan to see the giant jellyfish there. So so what makes it so extraordinary, and, and why did you make the trip there to see it? Yeah, this jellyfish is really, really interesting. Um, it grows to being 
500 pounds, which is like wow. the size of a refrigerator. Yeah, so it's a <laughs> massive, massive jellyfish, you know. And um, throughout the 20th century, this jellyfish was seen in off the coast of Japan, but only about every 30 years. So it would be the kind of thing where, like, a fisherman would tell his son, like, well, that year the giant jellyfish showed up, you know, look out for them. Right. And then 30 years later, the son would be like, oh, yeah, this is what my dad told me about. Hmm. And then in the 21st century, they started appearing every year. And not just every year, but, like, in enormous numbers where the entire sea would be just these huge, and they're sort of maroon, these maroon giant blobs of jellyfish for as far as the eye could see. And there's pictures of fishing boats with their nets, just this sea of maroon jelly. One fishing vessel collected so many of these giant jellyfish that it actually, the weight of them in their nets flipped the boat over and threw the crew into the sea. Oh, wow. And I, I just want to ask very quickly, you know, for years people have been saying that jellyfish are going to be winners in this world of climate change. But uh, why is it important that we have a balanced population of jellyfish? The question is really complex. And I think that we have a, um, a tendency to look at the ocean as like this one big place. And in fact, you know, the ocean is a really uh, diverse, dynamic place. It has lots of different ecosystems, lots of latitudes and longitudes, different temperatures, different salinities. And so, and different kinds of pressures that we're putting on the ocean. So in some places, already jellyfish are dominating the ecosystem. And those are the places that we should look to, to say, like, do we want our oceans in other places to become like that? And um, a good example is off the coast of Namibia, where they really, really overfished the ocean. Um, there was not good controls on what was happening. In fact, Namibia was under the auspices of South Africa for a long time, and South Africa didn't monitor what was happening in Namibia, and these big commercial ships came in from other countries and just fished it like crazy and opened up ecological niches for jellyfish. And it used to be one of the richest fisheries in the world where like a million tons of fish every year could be fished easily. And then the jellyfish uh, were able to get a foothold. And now the biomass is like two to three times more jellyfish than fish there. And the seals and birds, there's reports of them starving because there's just not enough fish for them to eat anymore. So the reason why we want to pay attention to this is because we could end up with ecosystems where birds and seals are starving, and I don't think anyone wants that kind of situation. Big bluefish jellyfish can also sweep into fish farms, and about a month ago, a huge bloom swept into a fish farm in Scotland and killed like a quarter million salmon overnight. Mm, so the the yeah the numbers you know start to add up of the devastation that jellyfish can cause. Not to mention the sting the stings that you know hurt us very personally mm -hmm. and individually in the water. So. And emotionally yeah. and, and all of that. <laughs> I know our, our friend John would have very much appreciated you having been there to educate him before he jumped in the water. Do you remember this, Mango, when we were on a trip in the in the Keys? And he we were out in a boat, and he looks out, and he says, I, I don't think those are the kind of jellyfish that sting. And there was a, a large school of them, I guess. And he jumped in the water, and he says, these are the kind that sting. These are the kind that sting. <laughs> So it would, it, it did not, it did not go well. So mainly this episode is to try to get him to learn a little bit more and not make the same mistake. So if you get stung by a jellyfish, the thing you should do is hot water and vinegar. 
Julie, this is such a wonderful read. The book is called Spineless, The Science of Jellyfish and the Art of Growing a Backbone. Julie, thanks so much for joining us on Part-Time Genius. Diamonds Direct has done it again. This month only, get ready for an offer you can't resist. Buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. That's right, a stunning diamond tennis bracelet at no extra cost. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. So hurry into Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet will not last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com slash consulting. IBM. Let's create. Welcome back to Part-Time Genius. We're talking squid, octopus, and jellyfish. So we've been chatting octopuses for a while, and we need to move on to squid. But before we do, why don't we reel off some of our favorite octopus? Definitely. What are some of the weirder ones you want to talk about? Well, I love Lewis, you know, the cantankerous giant Pacific (laughs) octopus we were talking about. Also from that article, he was only six feet, but they can actually grow to be about 16 feet and weigh up to 600 pounds. Wow. Each arm has uh, about 280 suckers, and they lay up to 90,000 eggs at a time. 90,000 <laughs> eggs. I know. That's a lot of omelets. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, one octopus I like on the other end of the spectrum is this thing called the octopus wolfie, which is the world's smallest octopus. Oh, yeah. It's like an inch long and weighs less than a gram. Yeah, I guess it's kind of like, kind of like a pocket octopus. <laughs> Exactly. And it's perfect for travel. But that doesn't mean they're not wily. So uh, according to a Newsweek article, a 2004 study gave them a 6 out of 10 on likelihood of escaping a tank. All right. Well, speaking of tiny octopus, this one's totally weird. It's called the blanket octopus. And while the females are a tall and leggy six feet long, the males are only about an inch tall. How crazy is that? (laughs) How is that possible? I have no idea. But their mating technique is equally weird. So here's how Newsweek described it. To breed, the male sticks his specialized mating arm inside the female and breaks it off. He then swims away with only seven legs and dies shortly after. (laughs) Octopus romance. (laughs) But the creatures are even more interesting than that, actually. Why is that? Well, the female blanket octopus is, is more of a swimmer. So instead of hiding in caves, it'll actually swim in the open water, which, as we've talked about, is pretty unusual for an octopus. And it fans out like a giant blanket whenever it senses a threat. But it's the tiny male that's the real character. So blanket octopuses are immune to man-of-war stings. So when something is attacking a blanket male, it'll just break off a poisonous tentacle of a Portuguese man-of-war and then whip it around like crazy, you know, to swashbuckle against its enemies. It's, I mean, they're pretty feisty, actually. Well, I do want to come back to octopuses' food and this whole etiquette of throwing them at Red Wings games because there's some strict rules there. But let's get into squid. So what are some of the characteristics of squid? So here are the basics. 
Squids are really good hunters, first of all. I mean, much like octopus, they've got beaks and radula. Though they have 10 arms in total, they, they actually have eight short arms around the mouth and then these two long tentacles with suckers, which are really helpful when they're hunting. Now, unlike octopus, squids swim in the open ocean, and they're amazing swimmers. In fact, they've been called the fighter jets of the cephalopods <laughs> because they use this water propulsion system to shoot backwards at these tremendous speeds. Yeah, I've seen that some can zoom at speeds of like 25 miles per hour, yeah. which is stunning because that's almost shark speeds. And I, I was actually reading about Japanese flying squid. Have you heard of them? I didn't realize that flying squid <laughs> were a thing. I don't know how I missed that. Yeah, so they get confused for flying fish sometimes, although flying fish can move that way for great lengths. While, you know, these squid can only jump out of the water for 20-meter stretches, then they kind of tire out. It seems more like a cool party trick than anything that's wise in terms of evolution. So why do you say that? Well, they accidentally jump onto fishing boats all the time. Oh, gosh. And birds like the red-footed booby will just pluck them out of the air for meals. You know, it's kind of a weird question, but... How do they see when they're flying backwards? Is is that why they end up on the boats? Because they can't see where they're going or what? I think it's more that they can't exactly like switch directions while they're in the air. But from what I read, their eyes, tentacles and beak are all at the back. And as they're flying, they have a pretty good view. And they'll actually pull their fins and adjust their tentacles to make a smoother dive back into the water. There's still a lot of study that has to be done on them. And that's actually something that seems to come up a lot. Like, I read that one of the ways people catch octopus is that they just place a little basket next to an octopus cave or dwelling, and then an octopus might just snuggle into the basket, and then fishermen can pull that up. But catching enormous squid isn't that easy, and clearly there's a fascination with the giant squid, which has been pretty elusive. Yeah, it's funny to think about how that misunderstanding about giant squid and just not being able to observe their behavior has kind of made them these monsters of the sea. I mean, you see them written about in literature— in Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, you know, it's this monster squid with a taste for human flesh and oh, attacks right. the submarine and everything. And yeah, actually, I was reading this article about uh, the Kraken and Wired. It was called Fantastically Wrong. <laughs> and I didn't realize this, but early Europeans assumed that all creatures on Earth had a counterpart in the sea. So there were these strange beasts like sea rhinos and even <laughs> things like sea bishops, you know, the seafaring counterparts to the human land bishops. But the descriptions of the Kraken, it's just crazy. So this is from 1775, when an historian named Eric Pontopoden, he wrote in the Natural History of Norway, The beast is round, flat, and full of arms, the largest and most surprising of all animal creations. He then claimed to have talked to a number of different fishermen, and all of them gave the exact same description, including that the squid's back is a mile and a half in circumference. <laughs> The various tentacles could be mistaken for islands. And another funny thing is that there's this second mythical sea creatures that gets described. And it says, um, the island whale that's so big sailors mistake it for land. <laughs> and when the sailors set shore and build fire on it, that's when the beast awakens and drags them to their doom. So most people assume that the Kraken descriptions are exaggerations of the giant squid that some fishermen must have seen, which can be at least 43 feet long, which is huge. Mm -hmm. Though as the article reveals, both the colossal squid and the giant squid are, you know, very lackadaisical and by one estimate use up to 600 times less energy than similarly sized predators. Wow. So supposedly they just hang out waiting for prey instead of actively chasing anything. And what's the difference between the colossal and giant squid? Well, it's likely that the giant squid is longer than the colossal, but the colossal is probably heavier and has bigger eyes. And so giant squids also have teeth on their tentacles, which, of course, is terrifying <laughs> to think about. 
while colossal squids have sharp hooks that swivel on their tentacles. So I, I mean, I guess it's just like a different sort of terrifying. Well, I'm glad they're kind of lazy, but it's also a little disappointing. Like you want them to have more personality than that. <laughs> Though I, I did read about squid and whale battles, which are amazing. All right. So why, why is that? So I'd always wondered why colossal squid have such big eyes. It basically comes down to whales. So, like, squid have the biggest eyes on the planet, measuring over 11 inches in diameter, which is essentially the size of a dinner plate. But the reason is that in murky and weak light in the ocean, you need a big eye to pick up light. But a biologist at Duke modeled the eye and realized that a bigger eye isn't actually good at seeing all objects. It's just a lot better at seeing really big objects coming at you. And according to Scientific American, that means these squid can spot whales at a dark depth of 500 meters or more hopefully enough space that they can shoot out a cloud of ink and flee. Oh, so what about the whales, though? So what's interesting is that they don't actually need great eyesight because they're all using sonar. But the way the whales catch the squid is amazing. So for smaller prey, they'll actually use these ultrasound bursts. Like the whales emit these noises, and it knocks out prey and sends schools of fish swimming. But when the scientists at Woods Hole studied the creatures, they realized that squids don't react to these sonic bursts at all. So instead, the whales use this incredible twisting motion to go after them. Basically, they like wriggle and twist their bodies as they attack. And that creates this giant, crazy vacuum, which pulls in the squid so that they can just slurp them up from a distance. And so does that always work? No, I mean, sometimes the giant and colossal squid are big enough to fight back. And as Live Science points out, you can find sperm whales with suction scars on their skin. And that's this obvious mark of a squid that got away. All right. Well, before we get off the squid, I feel like we should, again, mention a few of our favorites. I think I like the uh, it was called the cockeyed squid, you know, just <laughs> because he's so funny looking. So their left eye is usually twice as big as the right eye. It's just kind of comical <laughs> looking, honestly. So it actually bulges out of the squid's head. All right. So so what's yours? Oh, that's great. So my favorite is definitely the Vampiro Toothus Infernalis, which is essentially the vampire squid from hell. That's how it translates. But uh, everything about it is wrong. So starting with the fact that it's actually a big wuss, <laughs> when it senses danger, it bites off one of its bioluminescent arms, which then floats away. And that sends the predator in the wrong direction. But it just has to keep gnawing off arms to, <laughs> to wow. evade attackers. And also the vampire squid from hell is a misnomer because it's actually an octopus. The vampire squid from hell. I think you went on that one. That one's pretty good. <laughs> All right. So there's a lot we won't be able to get to today. But but I know some of that will get saved for an episode on technologies we're stealing from the animal kingdom. We've talked about doing an episode like that, you know, specifically how cuttlefish and squid both camouflage and communicate through changing their skin colors. There's actually a super elaborate code that some squid use. But I also know we want to return to the octopus for uh, for a bit before we move on. Yeah, and talk about octopus cities and red wings etiquette. But let's tackle that after a little break. Thinking of popping the question? Diamonds Direct has an offer you can't miss. This month only, buy a natural diamond engagement ring of 1 carat plus and receive a free natural 1 carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. No one provides education, selection, and value like Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet from your friends at Diamonds Direct won't last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. 
What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com slash consulting. IBM. Let's create. Welcome back to Part-Time Genius. So, Will, I know you got pretty excited about this octopus community you were reading about. <laughs> Want to give us a rundown on why an octopus city is so exciting? Yeah, that's right. Mainly because it's called Octlantis, <laughs> which is such a great name. And it's a big deal partially because the gloomy octopus, you know, a.k.a. the Sydney octopus, is mostly known for being a loner. But the reason this was exciting, and, and we saw this in an article in Quartz, was that the creatures were filmed exhibiting complex social behaviors that you wouldn't imagine from a solitary animal. Hmm. It's funny because in 2009, there was another of these colonies found called Octopolis, very different <laughs> than Octlantis. And, and scientists assumed it was this total anomaly. So it's pretty cool. I feel like they're going to run out of octopun names. But uh, what actually happens there? Well, the octopus interact and they chase each other around. And at any time, there are 2 to 15 octopus and it has to be a pretty special situation. Like, you know, there has to be a good stock of food coming through pretty regularly and not that many habitable places in the surrounding seabed that makes them want to be there. And, you know, but while the gloomy octopus are solitary, it seems like communities like this could only exist if octopus had lived and interacted with one another for generations. <laughs> Well, I, I do feel like Octopus Village should be like a Nickelodeon show with oh, totally. one plucky octopus and a bunch of sarcastic, gloomy ones. <laughs> but uh, even though for most of the show we've been talking about living octopus, I, I found a couple things that were fascinating about dead ones. And what's that? Well, Nolan pulled the research for me on how Greeks cook octopus, and it was kind of fascinating. So the divers slice a nerve between the eyes that instantly kills the beast, and it's generally not a long, protracted battle. But unlike fish, which you'd grill right away... The octopus is mostly water, so you really have to dry it out. Like, they'll beat the carcass up to a 100 times on a rock to wring out the water, and then they put the octopus on a clothesline all day, and once it's dried, then you can grill it, or else you just get something that's super mushy. But this Greek grill master told NPR, quote, In the old days when there weren't freezers, people here used to sun the octopus for days until it was tiny and fit into a little carafe, but expanded to its original size when cooked. Isn't that crazy? It's so weird, yeah. But it also feels maybe a little bit morbid. So well, why don't we skip to this Red Wings fact that you were, you were talking about before? <laughs> well, I'm not sure it's any less morbid, but uh, we, we both know about the Red Wings and this legend of the octopus and how people started lobbing dead creatures on the rink after games because the Red Wings at one time needed eight games to sweep the series. And it kind of became a thing, but apparently there's an art to it. Really? All right, so, so what's the art to throwing the octopus? Well, the New York Times did this great piece on it. And the trick to tossing a large octopus onto the rink is to boil it with wine and lemon juice or else it's going to stink. <laughs> also, it has to be boiled. Like a well-boiled octopus can travel uh, 100 feet. And as they put it, <laughs> bounce and roll satisfactorily across the ice when it lands. It's amazing what they go through just to make this happen. So, all right, so what happens if it's a rare, like a medium rare octopus instead of well-boiled? Yeah, those just splat, apparently. Oh, nice. <laughs> Which seems equally amusing. But the article goes into these mistakes that rookies tend to make. So you have to grab the octopus arms in the middle, and you've got to keep the head back and toss it from the knees in what they describe as this 
over-exaggerated grenade toss. <laughs> According to the piece, if you try to throw it like a baseball or by the tips of the tentacles, octopus parts are going to end up on your neighbors. Oh. But the absolute best part of the article was how people sneak the octopus in. Because while it's this beloved tradition, management doesn't love dealing with the octopus. So people have all these smuggling tricks. Like uh, one guy, he'll wrap it in a Ziploc and wear them at, like a pot belly. <laughs> and others try to sneak them under really tall hats. Which just feels kind of crazy because, according to the Times, the biggest octopus to land on the rink was 30 pounds. Wow, it's an impressive pot belly. <laughs> and, you know, while it isn't good for the octopus, I guess it is good for octopus sales. I, I read somewhere that they actually double in Detroit during the hockey playoffs. Yeah, that's right. I didn't sneak a full-grown octopus in here, but I did sneak in a few extra facts. You ready for the fact off? You know I am. All right, while squid are easy to digest for many ocean creatures, the one part that isn't is their beak. Apparently, beaks often collect inside other sea creatures. Hmm. Have you heard of Kimberella? I can't say that I've heard of it's Kimberella. It's a tiny mollusk that lived over 555 million years ago and is the earliest known ancestor of the squid. Also, doesn't it sound like she left seven slippers behind at uh, Prince Charming's palace? She sounds beautiful, Kimberella. <laughs> All right, so did you know that human trash can occasionally be good for octopus that have no shelter? On a dive off of the Puget Sound, one scientist observed eight beer bottles, all with tiny red octopus <laughs> in them. I mean, these beer bottles had a 100% occupancy rate. That's a good rate. Have you heard of the Octopotuthis deletron? I have not. It's a squid that doesn't have sex organs, so the males have to put these uh, sperm packets on the side of their potential mates for later fertilization. <laughs> but because their eyesight isn't great in the cloudy waters, they just tag these onto any squid they can, hoping a few <laughs> of them might be females. Oh, wow. <laughs> All right. Well, my favorite squid discovery might be the Grimaldi scaled squid. I guess Prince Albert I of Monaco was an amateur squid enthusiast. And I didn't remember this story from Mental Floss, but apparently he'd sift through what he called the precious regurgitations of sperm whales for specimen. Oh. <laughs> and, and because the scales of the squid were so flashy and luxurious, he named the squid after the house he belonged to, the House of Grimaldi. Oh, a luxury squid. I like that. Why don't you take the crown today? I can do that. Thank you. All right. Well, remember, if we miss some of your favorite octopus or squid facts, be sure to share them with us on our 24-7 fact hotline. That's one eight four four pt genius or by reaching out on Facebook or Twitter. And if you enjoy the show, help us get a word out by reviewing us on iTunes. You can also email us at parttimegenius at howstuffworks.com. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. <laughs> Jerry Rowland does the exec producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eve Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Did we, did we forget Jason? Jason who? Thank 
thinking of popping the question? Diamonds Direct has an offer you can't miss. This month only, buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. No one provides education, selection, and value like Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet from your friends at Diamonds Direct won't last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Your new home journey starts at Fisher Homes, where everything is red, white, and new. Explore exclusive summer savings and start your journey by selecting your ideal home site and your dream community. Choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans and bring your style to life at the Lifestyle Design Center. Are you looking for a quick move-in ready home instead? Fisher Homes has options for those too. Fill out a form to connect with a new home advisor at fisherhomes.com to get started today before the sun sets on summer savings.